The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. The first of the Ten Commandments warns against worshiping other gods. The Old and New Testaments condemn idolatry, sorcery, pagan customs, and false teaching. Syncretism, which seeks to blend different religions whereby followers of the true God incorporate pagan worship rituals, is also forbidden. Most professing Christians acknowledge the obvious ways in which these principles can be violated, such as through joining cults and participating in the occult. However, many fail to detect how some political movements function as secular religions. Socialist crusades are a primary example, and their religious nature has not gone unnoticed. As early as 1793, the famous Irish statesman Edmund Burke warned that Jacobins, a term denoting the Jacobin Club behind the French Revolution, sought to replace religion with their own political movement in order to seize social control. In 1840, a tract in Great Britain entitled Christianity and Socialism, examined, compared, and contrasted, depicted socialism as a false religion competing with Christianity to cure moral and physical evil. Around the same time, a Presbyterian pastor in South Carolina accused atheists, socialists, communists, newly arrived Red Republicans, and Jacobins of attempting to arrange society without regard for God, but instead as the machinery of man. Socialism represented a new man-centered attempt to achieve a social equality Christian societies failed to deliver. As Marxism developed and ascended during the 20th century, its essential religious nature became more obvious. In 1955, the French philosopher Raymond Aron observed that Marxist prophetism conformed to the typical pattern of the Judeo-Christian prophetism. In other words, both condemned the status quo and provided an alternative vision which culminated in a utopia for those who demonstrated obedience to the chosen path through their membership in an exclusive collective group. The answer to fundamental questions of existence and purpose made sense in, and only in, an interlocking, all-encompassing paradigm outside of which there was no reality. As Sir Roger Scruton pointed out, Marxism shared the category of totality with traditional religion. Classifying Marxism as both a political and religious arrangement, though, may seem strange to those familiar with Karl Marx's personal feelings toward religion. Marx famously said religion was the opium of the people. He followed his statement by claiming that abolishing religion would trade the illusory happiness of the people for their real happiness. In Marx's mind, religion was a threat to communism since it reinforced the established political order and convinced the masses to endure temporary deprivations by teaching them to place their hope in an eternal realm. Consequently, revolutionaries inspired by classical Marxism consider their movements incompatible with religion. The church was a tool of the capitalists, and Christianity undermined the historical materialism fundamental to Marxism's theory of social development. Thus, classical Marxism competed with traditional religion for the same reason religions competed with one another for popular allegiance. Marxists did not desire a void to exist where religion once thrived. Instead, they wanted to be the ones to fill that void with their own metaphysical and moral assumptions. That is why communist regimes elevated dictators and party heroes to the level of deity, 
required subjects to pledge allegiance to the state and funneled social associations through party channels. Because humans are natural worshipers, suppressing religion in one area simply ensured it reemerged in another. Some advocates for totalitarian socialism were straightforward about their intentions. For example, H.G. Wells, a member of the Socialist Fabian Society, dedicated himself to achieving a global utopian cooperative called the Open Conspiracy, which replaced economic, traditional, religious, familial, and national loyalties. Wells described the Open Conspiracy as a great world movement eclipsing socialism or communism. He proclaimed, it will be more than they were. It will be, frankly, a world religion. In 1940, he called for outright world socialism in the establishment of a new world order, which he again compared to a religion. Though most 20th century totalitarian schemes opposed or replaced Christianity, liberation theology represented an effort to infuse Christian teaching with Marxist understandings. Rather than using Christianity to bolster the established order, as Marx had feared, liberation theologians created a version of the faith bent on destroying the status quo in favor of an egalitarian social revolution. Relying on insights from Marxism, these innovators crafted an interpretation of the Christian faith out of the experience of the poor. Perhaps the most famous liberation theologian was Gustavo Gutierrez, a Dominican priest who learned about Marxism while studying in France. In his popular 1971 book, A Theology of Liberation, Gutierrez commended Marx's critique of capitalistic societies for pointing the way toward an era in history when man can live humanly. Gutierrez believed the biblical command to love neighbor was a call to transform social structures which benefited the few while exploiting certain classes, peoples, and races. Ultimately, Gutierrez wanted a radical change in the foundation of society which challenged the private ownership of the means of production. This would be accomplished in a Christian framework. Jesus' vision was to achieve a different society, where God's love dispelled all injustice, privilege, oppression, or narrow nationalism. The gospel included political liberation and involved the problem of social injustice caused by sin. The marginalized and their moral purity set the template for this societal salvation as others, whether Christians or not, were converted through working to liberate the poor and oppressed. Liberation theology distorted the reason for Christ's first coming, modified the mission of the church, denied the universality of sin, destroyed traditional Christian teaching on social order, and added to the gospel. It was a version of Christianity conformed to Marxism, or perhaps liberation theology can best be summarized as a Marxist faith built on a Christian foundation. Although liberation theology started in South America in a Roman Catholic context, Similar versions arose throughout the world and were adopted by feminists, racial groups, homosexuals, and other faiths and traditions. The most influential outgrowth in the United States is black liberation theology, which profoundly shaped political figures such as Cornel West, Barack Obama, and Raphael Warnock. James Cone, the founder of black liberation theology, may have strayed farther from orthodoxy than Gustavo Gutierrez. In his 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power, Cone crafted a theology whose sole purpose was to apply the freeing power of the gospel to black people under white oppression. In his most popular work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Cone solidified his views. 
He believed the gospel was found wherever poor people struggle for justice. Jesus came to earth to show solidarity with the oppressed. Salvation included black people in power to love their own blackness. The black victim of lynching became the most potent symbol for understanding salvation. And the cross and the lynching tree interpreted each other. Like Gutierrez and other liberation theologians, Cone gutted Christian teaching while keeping Christian terminology. Broadly speaking, theologies of liberation were attempts to redefine the faith by conforming it to the revolutionary political impulses of the 1960s. This wasn't necessarily a new phenomenon. Throughout history, examples abound of biblical practitioners importing concepts from their religions to replace fundamental core doctrines. The nation of Israel notoriously adopted Canaanite mythology, which subverted their own monotheism, ceremonial law, and ethical commands. During the early church period, heretical Gnostic sects grafted pagan philosophy into their understanding of creation, salvation, and eschatology. Recent history has seen other Christian groups syncretize with collectivist and totalitarian schemes. For example, during the 20th century, the social gospel movement merged Fabian socialism with Christian doctrine. Not only did this combination redesign Christian social teaching on matters of private property, the role of the church, and the existence of hierarchy, but it reshaped the purpose and scope of salvation itself. In Nazi Germany, the German Christian movement used higher critical methods to de-Judaize the faith in order to make it compatible with Nazism. This decision destroyed the inerrancy of scripture and resulted in a version of Christianity which did almost nothing more than serve as an apologetic for Hitler's agenda. Today, history repeats itself once again as many Christian groups ingratiate themselves to a civil religion dedicated to achieving an egalitarian ideal by deconstructing traditional institutions and forcing equality through mechanisms of the modern state. In some ways, this merger between Christianity and the social justice movement should not come as a surprise. After all, it was professing Christians who originally popularized the term social justice. It was also in Christian societies that socialist and communist movements first originated. This was not an accident. The late Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer said there's only one way to understand utopian Marxianism, and that is that it's a Christian heresy. He taught that Marxists use Christianity's concern for man as an individual to justify their moral claims, even though they could not rationalize this concern given their own materialism. In other words, Marxism functioned like a parasite feeding on the ruins of Christian civilization, adopting its templates, using its general themes, and living inside its hollowed-out shell infused with totalitarian assumptions and egalitarian goals. Many cultural observers are noticing these features in today's social justice movement. Critical theory expert James Lindsay identified this Christian blueprint when he stated that social justice is ultimately a confessional faith in the Augustinian tradition, meaning that it included confession, conversion, and a liturgy of praise and penance. Joseph Bottom, a social commentator and public intellectual, described the movement as driven by a spiritual desire, left over from Protestantism. White guilt, cancel culture, and Twitter replaced original sin, shunning, and church. Author Noah Rothman thought the immutable traits conferred by identity politics combined with social justice imperatives created something that resembles a religion. Perhaps nowhere is the evidence of underlying religious fervor more noticeable than in the recent Black Lives Matter movement. Protests inspired by Black Lives Matter broke out around the world following the passing of George Floyd, a black man who died after being put in a chokehold as Minneapolis police detained him for using counterfeit money and resisting arrest. 
Most media attention surrounding the protests focused on proposed solutions to systemic racism, such as defunding the police, tearing down historical monuments, and providing reparations for victimized racial groups. Some outlets also reported on the more violent protests, which produced property damage and police casualties. Many Americans were already familiar with the political debate sparked by allegations of police abuse in previous incidents. The difference in this particular scenario was both the massive scale of the movement and what appeared to be the peculiar religious sacraments accompanying it. Paintings elevating the victims of alleged police brutality to an almost saint-like status appeared around the world, while thousands of protesters acted out scenes from their final moments by imitating the victim's body, position, or chanting their last words. It also became ritualistic for protest attendees to raise black power fists and kneel in unison on the ground. Members of Congress famously donned West African kente cloth as they kneeled for over eight minutes in recognition of George Floyd's death. In a show of submission to the Black Lives Matter narrative, police officers would also often kneel before protesters. Like the officers, white activists sometimes distanced themselves from their own privilege by washing the feet and shining the shoes of black people. At one protest in Charleston, some white protesters even mimicked abused slaves by showcasing scars on their backs and wearing chains. The parallels were obvious. Instead of the Christian tradition, which ascribed honor on the basis of virtue and achievement, the social justice movement assigned this quality to members of victimized categories. The veneration of minorities who died at the hands of or in the custody of the police rivaled the intensity found in early Christian martyr cults. However, instead of reaching for a more achievable goal, like emulating a martyr's piety, the social justice faithful could only rehearse the victim's suffering and death. It was in this process that victims paid for the sins of an impersonal and abusive system, while members of oppressor groups tried to absolve themselves of complicity. Social justice believers temporarily washed themselves of whiteness through public displays of solidarity, whether in physical protests or social media endeavors, such as Blackout Tuesday. Ultimately, it was this sense of shame which created the momentum necessary for the Black Lives Matter movement to go mainstream. In the Houston neighborhood where George Floyd previously lived, a group of white Christians expressed the heart behind much of the movement when they bowed before a group of black protesters and asked to be forgiven for years and years of systemic racism. In Minneapolis, prayers, baptisms, and worship music rang out near the location of Floyd's death, where activists created a shrine referred to as a church. Protesters made pilgrimages to other holy sites, including the infamous Chaz Commune in Seattle, the Breonna Taylor Memorial in Louisville, and the Robert E. Lee Monument in Richmond, where protesters gathered for speeches, prayers, art, music, dance, free food, and books, as well as voter registration. It is no wonder that journalist Michael Tracy remarked that every protest he had been to perfectly mirrored an outdoor evangelical Christian worship service. There was also a dark side to the movement, though, which paralleled a Christian sense of wrath and judgment. People started using the term cancel culture at the end of 2018, but it did not become popular until the spring of 2020, when individuals, businesses, and institutions faced censorship and destruction on a large scale for failure to comply with social justice-driven demands. A digital mob of Twitter users and celebrities smeared Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling as transphobic because she insinuated that menstruation was unique to women. Quaker Oats dumped their Aunt Jemima pancake mix and syrup brand for portraying racially insensitive stereotypes. 
Ironically, if they asked descendants of actresses who portrayed Aunt Jemima, they would find them proud of their ancestors' performance. Popoff, an advertising agency, fired music publicist Danielle Reese simply for posting a picture on social media in which she held a Make America Great Again sign. They stated her picture violated their commitment to equality, inclusion, and kindness. Perhaps small businesses endured the worst effects of cancel culture. At a time when government lockdowns in response to COVID-19 were already destroying small businesses, the social justice movement often added an extra barrier. Nini's Deli was the top-ranking restaurant in Chicago in January of 2020, according to Yelp. By June 6th, it was permanently closed, boarded up, and graffitied with obscenities, threats, anti-Christian messaging, and social justice symbols associated with Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQIA movement. Nini's crime? The owner, Juan Riesco, failed to post a black square on social media for Blackout Tuesday and voiced disagreement with the anti-family positions of the Black Lives Matter organization. This in turn sparked broken contracts with other businesses, death threats, and protests numbering in the thousands outside the restaurant. Juan's family had to flee for their lives to another state in the middle of the night. Of course, these situations only skim the surface of the numerous examples of firing, censorship, violence, and intimidation triggered by failure to meet the demands of the social justice inquisition. For some, the results were even more traumatic. Multiple videos surfaced of Black Lives Matter activists harassing ordinary citizens at restaurants by requiring reparations or shows of solidarity in a manner almost reminiscent of Maoist struggle sessions. In many cases, protesters brutally beat white people, including the elderly. According to some estimates, there was over $1 billion in property damage and over 2,000 injured police officers in the United States as a result of protests in 2020. The number of officers shot also went up substantially. While it is reasonable to assume that much of the criminal elements simply took advantage of the opportunity protests afforded them, it is also true that their justification was rooted in the same moral crusade motivating the entire movement. A kind of holy war was acceptable, and perhaps necessary, against an evil white hegemonic power. Hawk Newsom, the Black Lives Matter of Greater New York president, indicated that violence was unavoidable in the struggle for freedom in an abusive country. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who founded the New York Times 1619 Project, stated that property destruction was not violence, but actually a justified rage over disrespect from law enforcement. National Public Radio promoted Vicki Osterweil's book in Defense of Looting, which supported attacks on white settler society through broad lawlessness, property destruction, looting, and possibly even shooting a few cops and soldiers. In the end, police brutality, economic disparities, and prejudice all emanated from a tendency to elevate white people over people of color, and what critical race theorists refer to as whiteness. And like sin itself, destroying it sometimes required drastic measures. In a real sense, believers in Black Lives Matter functioned in an almost Christian way with their own saints, salvation, sacraments, sacred knowledge, sin, and suffering. This chart outlines some of the parallels to traditional Christian customs and beliefs. In order to understand the Christian gospel, one must first come to terms with the idea of original sin. A parallel exists in the social justice movement and the Black Lives Matter manifestation in particular to original sin called whiteness. Whiteness is the default setting of all of human society. It governs the interactions of people. 
And those who have the advantage of whiteness were born with it. It's called white privilege, a system that allocates special advantages to people who are white and not to others. And this is not something that is chosen, it's just something that is inherited. Now, of course, uh, in Christianity, there is a divine law. And in the social justice movement, there is political correctness. Breaking a rule of political correctness by offending a marginalized or victim group could get one into judgment or canceled. In Christianity, uh, there are natural consequences sometimes to the sins that one partakes in. And of course, after death, there is a divine judgment. In the social justice framework, one gets publicly shamed, and that could even include their business being taken away. Now, the good news in Christianity is that one can be born again, sanctified, and then finally glorified in heaven. In the social justice framework, one becomes woke, which is like becoming born again. They become aware of the inequalities and disparities that exist around them and how complicit they've been in those inequalities and disparities. Sacraments uh, in Christianity or ordinances um, would include things like uh, becoming baptized and special ceremonies uh, to show that one is a Christian and a follower. Well, in the social justice movement, progressive political action, uh, social media sometimes uh, even uh, plays a role in this to show one's uh, self that they are um, part of the social justice religion. And while there is no divine heaven, there is a state of social equity, inclusion, and diversity. And that is what social justice advocates are striving for ultimately, a heaven on earth. Now there is no formal church in the social justice movement, but there is something equivalent to it in a sense. Uh, in Christianity, people assemble on Sunday usually to go to church. Uh, they participate in things like evangelism and discipleship. In the social justice movement, people go to protest. They participate in activism. Uh, they go to um, implicit bias trainings uh, to um, manifest uh, the uh, ways in which they participate in whiteness without perhaps knowing it. And they go through a long-term process of becoming ideal social justice advocates by decolonizing themselves. This is sort of a parallel to discipleship, uh, to uh, go down deep and really root out all the things uh, and ways in which people assume or participate in the white hegemony. Now in Christianity, there's a hierarchy. There's certain offices. Um, there are prophets and apostles. There are, um, uh, in, in certain um, religions, there are priests and certain uh, um, iterations of Christianity have kept that word. Uh, Protestantism generally views Christ as the once and for all high priest, um, but priests have served the function of absolving of sin, of uh, bridging the gap between man and God, and then of course there's clergy. Uh, and in the social justice framework, there are critical theorists. They serve as the prophets. They can interpret uh, the experience of the uh, minority and, and victim groups. Uh, they are able to, to get that information and then to communicate it. And then the media serve as priests, whether that's social media or mainstream media. Um, the media will absolve someone of their sin if they violate political correctness, or more often than not, they will condemn that person. 
And then, of course, uh, the clergy would be the community organizers, those who are the foot soldiers on the ground who take what the critical theorists advocate and then apply it. Now, in Christianity, uh, God has a certain nature. Some of the attributes of God include um, his, uh, his love, his justice, uh, his divine providence. In social justice, uh, there is a parallel to this, um, in a sense. Uh, for providence, there is social conflict theory. Uh, inescapably, every relationship uh, eventually has some kind of component that it reduces to uh, that is a competition between power relationships of some kind. There's a conflict going on between social groups, and this explains how societies function. Uh, it, rather than uh, inheriting something or having um, a, a special uh, privilege uh, because of the providence of God is rather due to something uh, like white privilege. So that would come from social conflict theory. In Christianity, uh, we, there is a sense of love that is to be exercised in charity to others. In the social justice movement, this takes the form of revolution. Uh, it is more of a corporate kind of action to take down institutions that promote the hegemony and in, promote inequality. In Christianity, there is a form of justice, uh, equality before the law, and uh, ultimately, the source of this justice is God himself and his character. In the social justice movement, the state becomes the source and the one to administer justice itself. Uh, the state cannot be questioned. It takes on a divine attribute, ultimately. Now, um, in order to communicate with God or to understand God's communication to man in Christianity, one must have a sense of divine revelation. Uh, through natural revelation, and then, more, more importantly, perhaps, special revelation. In the social justice framework, uh, there's also a form of revelation. Um, oppressed perspectives are the inspiration. Those are the divine um, perspectives that may not be questioned. And then there are woke books that serve as the canon. Uh, books like White Fragility, um, in the Christian religion, some, there are equivalents now uh, for syncretized social justice Christianity, like Color of Compromise and other popular books like this. And then, of course, in Christianity, there are seminaries to train pastors for the ministry. In social justice, there are social studies programs at universities that really do the same thing just for another religion. And then the anthropology of social justice also has uh, some, uh, though it's very different, parallels to Christianity. In Christianity, uh, there is the world, the flesh, and the devil that manifests um, sin and evil and the curse that is on humankind. In the social justice framework, there is systemic racism, which is an equivalent to the world. There is white privilege, which is uh, just like the flesh. And then, of course, white supremacists are often vilified just like demons or the devil. In Christianity, there is a hope because every person is made in the image of God. And God chooses to display his love for those who repent of their sins and put their trust on him uh, by choosing them and to become saints. And saints ultimately go to heaven. And so there's this state of grace. In the social justice movement, there really is not a state of grace. 
But there is a parallel to the image of God, and that is intersectionality. Um, rather than everyone being equal in worth in the eyes of God because they're made in his image, intersectionality actually um, favors certain demographics over others based on their oppression status. So human worth reduces down to where someone falls on a power relationship scale. In Christianity, those who are chosen uh, have repented and put their trust in Christ. In social justice, there are social justice warriors who have gone through the process of getting woke and then dedicate their lives to promoting the equity, inclusion, and diversity that the movement is trying to bring about. They are the chosen ones, and they act that way. And then, of course, in Christianity, there are saints who eventually will go to heaven. Um, sometimes there are, are certain uh, examples of people who uh, um, exhibited more of a saintly demeanor than others, and they're elevated and platformed and talked about in Christian denominations and churches. And in the social justice movement, victims serve this uh, special category. They are the saints of the social justice religion. So as one can see, there's a lot of parallels between social justice and Christianity. This is the Augustinian framework that James Lindsay referred to. Many converts to the Black Lives Matter movement had what seemed to be best described as a religious conversion. For example, author Jessica Goudeau explained getting woke, which refers to becoming socially aware of racism and social injustice, as if it were a born-again experience. Not only did she undergo guilt for her white privilege, but she interpreted her new awareness as the pathway to liberation from white guilt. This sanctifying process included things like apologizing to black people for inadvertent racism, recognizing one's place in the system, silently listening to people of color, and educating white people on their privilege. Godot concluded her testimony with the evangelistic call, we must devote ourselves to becoming woke. This religious zeal was certainly shared at the highest levels of the movement. The founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, the official organization, saw no conflict between their self-described Marxism, including ties to Chinese Communist Party affiliates, and their religious beliefs. Patrice Coolers, who first came up with the slogan, Black Lives Matter, declared, our spirituality is at the center of Black Lives Matter. For Coolers, this meant practicing Ifa, a West African Yoruba religion, as well as a blend of Native American, Buddhist, and mindfulness traditions. In an interview, both Coolers and Melina Abdullah, a co-founder of BLM Los Angeles, talked about engaging in ancestral worship, conjuring up the spirits of black victims, and using hashtags like Say Her Name and BLM to channel spiritual energy. Abdullah also mentioned things like spirit guides, healing justice, and the divinity of black women on the Black Lives Matter website. Of course, New Age-style beliefs were not the only religious persuasions represented. BLM Los Angeles chapter included an interfaith effort aimed at toppling white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative capitalism using spiritual tools. On April 1st, 2017, the Black Lives Matter organization hosted a 24-hour event called Sacred Resist, which organized people of all faiths around the world to invoke all that is sacred for their cause. Black Lives Matter also promoted Christian preachers like Michael McBride, Starsky Wilson, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Not only were they positive about the politics of Jesus, 
But when televangelist Pat Robertson claimed Black Lives Matter was trying to destroy Christianity, the organization demanded an apology and accused him of offending Christian siblings who are part of our movement against racial injustice. In a sense, Black Lives Matter was deeply spiritual on its own accord, while at the same time appealing to a wide variety of faiths. Curiously, however, the group's core beliefs contradicted the ethics of most organized religions. According to the Black Lives Matter website, they not only stood against state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism, but also heteronormative thinking, cisgender privilege, and the Western-prescribed nuclear family. Many joint Black Lives Matter and LGBTQIA plus protests testify to the shared partnership existing between the movements. This promotion of sexual deviancy was incompatible with Orthodox Christian teaching. Other conflicting assumptions, such as standpoint epistemology, egalitarianism, and Marxism, were less overt but prevalent in the movement as a whole. The website and social media accounts emphasize socially grounded subjective experience, the moral imperative to correct economic disparities, and assigning oppressor or oppressed designations based on conflict theory. For Christians, partnering with the organization or the narrative of the movement itself required a certain level of compromise. The scripture condemned aberrations from heterosexual norms and marital fidelity. Instructions concerning marriage, family, and even social and political relationships assume the centrality of heterosexual families. Scripture also presented truth as objectively grounded in an invariable, absolute, and unchanging God. The idea that certain demographics based on social location and lived experience possess moral or intellectual superiority contradicted biblical teaching and resembled ancient Gnosticism. Instead, anyone with God's revelation could access objective truth, regardless of their intersectionality score. Applying justice disproportionately by creating standards with, which adjusted according to external factors, such as nationality or poverty, was likewise wrong in God's eyes. And while conflict was part of human history, Scripture taught that all people were under the curse of sin and possessed the capacity for evil, regardless of what social group they belonged to. In addition to functioning as its own religion, the Black Lives Matter movement undermined Christian understandings of sexual ethics, revelation, justice, and the universality of sin. Still, many Christians supported the movement. The New Yorker ran a story entitled, How Black Lives Matter is Changing the Church. In the late summer of 2020, the author described how the movement prompted a crisis of moral conscience for evangelical and mainstream churches. Young activists opposed what they perceived as the church's failure to address systemic racial injustice, as well as its culture of homophobia and misogyny. This helped prompt evangelical leaders to attend protests and even host rallies against racial injustice, a development the author described as unprecedented. Other mainstream outlets published similar accounts. Fox News chronicled how Christian leaders stood with the movement by repenting for institutional racism and protesting racial inequality. An article in The Atlantic stated the evangelical world was shifting in ways that would have been unimaginable only a few years ago. Pastors marched with protesters, accepted rebukes from black peers, and started receiving black ministry leaders in mostly white evangelical circles. Numerous evangelical institutions and churches sponsored lament sessions, drafted statements against systemic racism, and promoted changes in the way their organizations functioned. Some evangelicals tried to embrace the slogan, Black Lives Matter, while separating themselves from the organization and their overtly incompatible views on sexuality. One critic of this approach pointed out that Black Lives Matter was a clear and defined movement with framers who determined the meaning of their slogan. 
it was not only confusing to misappropriate their term, but it was also hypocritical, given that evangelicals valued authorial intent and opposed misappropriations of scripture. In addition, to some extent, evangelicals who attempted this approach inevitably accepted other incompatible assumptions like postmodern standpoint epistemology or Marxist-driven social conflict theory and egalitarianism. Like cultural Christians before them who created the social gospel, the German Christian movement and liberation theology, evangelicals were once again embracing a religion disguised as a political movement. Some referred to this new development as woke Christianity. Not only did it import critical social justice into Christian categories of law, sin, repentance, and forgiveness, but as a result, it introduced a system of works righteousness which stood in contrast to the once-for-all forgiveness provided in the Christian gospel. Some Christian leaders noticed this threat and sounded the alarm. Prominent radio preacher John MacArthur called social justice the most subtle and dangerous threat to the gospel he had ever seen in his lifetime. Bodie Bauckham, a popular author and speaker in the Reformed evangelical world, called social justice a cult, which infused Christian terms with new meaning. Other prominent Christian leaders, such as apologist James White, Pastor Douglas Wilson, and evangelist Paul Washer, signed the statement on social justice and the gospel organized by Michael O'Fallon, the president of Sovereign Nations, and Josh Bice, the president of the G3 conference. The statement clearly identified postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory, as inconsistent with biblical teaching. However, these efforts failed to impact the majority of mainstream evangelical leaders. In September of 2020, Hillary Clinton said that Black Lives Matter was a theological statement and encouraged the American church to be a real partner in this moment of moral awakening. There was enough of a similarity between the Black Lives Matter campaign and Christianity to convince many famous Christians and ministries to partner together. For large portions of mainstream evangelicalism, Clinton's dream was, and is, coming to fruition. As churches and parachurch organizations debate and separate over the issue of social justice in the coming years, students of history should remember the consequences of previous controversies, which followed a similar pattern. Students of scripture should perhaps also recall the words Elijah the prophet spoke to the nation of Israel on Mount Carmel. A version rewritten for modern application might read, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if critical theorists, then follow them.